Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from floor and decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with floor and decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and decor isn't just a couple of aisles, it's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's floor and decor. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Huckberry. Huckberry is my favorite place to shop online. Everything from clothing, they got stuff for your everyday carry, camping gear, things for your house like furniture and even like art. You name it, they've got it and they handpick all this stuff to feature in their store. Go check it out at huckberry.com. And if you want to see some of the things I've purchased from Huckberry over the years, go to aom.is slash aomhuck. And if it's your first time purchasing, use code ART15 at checkout and you'll save 15% off your first purchase. Again, aom.is is slash AOM Huck and then code art 15 to save 15% off your first purchase. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash manliness. That's squarespace.com slash manliness and enter offer code man. At checkout, that's offer code MAN, M-A-N. A better web starts with your website. Also, uh, another thing you do to help the art of manliness is to take a short survey. It's anonymous too. It'll take no more than five minutes. Uh, the answers on this survey will help match our show with advertisers that best fit your sensibilities. So listeners who complete this survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win $100 Amazon gift card. I promise we're not going to share or sell your email address to spammers, and we're not going to even send you an email unless you win the contest. So if you want to take the survey, again, it's very short. It's anonymous. Win an Amazon gift card. It Go to www.podsurvey.com slash artofman. That's www.podsurvey.com slash artofman to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. A few years ago, we did this extensive series about the life of Jack London, the writer who wrote such greats as White Fang, Call of the Wild, Seawolf, and just tons and tons of uh, virile, manly short stories. After I finished the series, I learned that the foremost expert and scholar on Jack London, his name's Earl Labor. He's the curator of the Jack London Museum in Shreveport. He teaches American literature at Centenary College of Louisiana. Um, he's been working on a biography of Jack London for the for past couple decades, and it came out last year. Picked up a copy, read it. It's great. It's the best biography that I've read on Jack London, and I had to get him on the show uh, to discuss the life of Jack London because 
To me, Jack London, there's so much we can learn as men from his life. He just lived an incredible, fascinating life, full of adventure, full of hard work, full of discipline, full of romance. I mean, he was the complete man. Anyways, Professor Labor and I talk about the life of Jack London, his work, and what lessons men can take from his life today. So stay tuned. Earl Labor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brad. It's good to be here. Okay, so you have studied the life and career of Jack London for your entire academic career and professional career, and you've been working on this biography for decades. What's the origin of your interest in London? Well, I first uh, uh, got the call. I'm going back over 70 years uh, uh, when I was in grade school in Tuscahoma, Oklahoma, we had a little library there, and one day I found a, a book uh, titled Jack London's Stories for Boys, and I got very interested in that, and so I read that, read The Call of the Wild, didn't hear any more about Jack London, actually, for the next several years. He never was mentioned when I went to high school or uh None of my classes in college. However, my best friend, uh, World War II uh, veteran, combat infantryman, he was only a couple of years older than I was, but seemed far older, I guess, because of the experiences he had been through. Anyhow, he was taking a course at SMU in the modern American novel under Professor George Bond. And seems incredible because London was untouchable by most of the academics then, but Dr. Bond, along with uh, Faulkner and Hemingway and some of the other writers like Fitzgerald, assigned Jack London's Martin Eden as one of the novels in that course. My friend P.B. Lindsay read it. He told me, he said, Earl, you got to read this uh, novel by Jack London. I said, what are you talking about? He says, Martin Eden. I said, I've never heard of it. He said, well, you, you'll find it uh, you'll find it not only interesting but relevant and powerful. Well, Brad, at the time, I was more interested in some other things, mostly extracurricular. But when I was in uh, the Navy, stationed at the Recruit Training Center in Bainbridge, Maryland, had a weekend pass up to Manhattan and was browsing in a newsstand there and saw this 25-cent paperback of Martin Eden. I remember my buddy had recommended it, so I said, well, I'll give it a try. I started reading it on the bus back to uh, the base, and I was captivated. In fact, I was so captivated that I (laughs) finished it that night in my bunk with a flashlight, and I vowed if I ever went back for a a degree, a Ph.D., I was going to make Jack London my... uh, uh, the subject of my dissertation, and that's where the uh, the interest really was sparked. So, yeah, that's very fascinating. You mentioned that for a while in your education and in your schooling, you didn't hear much about Jack London, and it might be because a lot of people think of Jack London as simply a popular, i.e. lowbrow adventure writer for young adults, but that really does a disservice to his work. How has Jack London's standing as a an author changed over the years, and has he gotten more respect in academia? 
Well, there's been a dramatic change in the last uh, 50 years, Brent. Uh, I think the problem from the outset was that most people, including uh, the critics and members of the academic establishment, hadn't read much Jack London and Penny London, maybe some of his dog stories. Uh, some of them hadn't even read The, uh, the Sea Wolf, which is one of his best sellers. In fact, uh, made into more movies than any other film I know about. It's made, been made into, I guess, a dozen different film versions. What I'm saying is that they uh, they hadn't bothered to read London. Also, the fact that he was popular happened to be a kind of negative with uh, a lot of members of the uh, uh, what the establishment or the literary elite. Let me just stop for a moment and say one reason that uh, I think they disliked Jack London was that he's so easy to read for the common or general reader. You don't need a college education, or you don't need a college uh, professor to tell you how to understand Jack London. Not like Ezra Pound or T.S. Eliot or James Joyce or even William Faulkner. In other words, he threatened to put the critics uh, uh, out of business, take the bread off their table. <laughs> you can understand why they they might not uh, want to deal with him. Anyhow. Uh, I'm going back to, I think, the dramatic change. Well, let me give you one other story here. It's one of my favorite stories, and I mentioned this in the biography. 1963, Sam Baskett, Michigan State University and president of the Michigan College English Association, introduced me to the annual conference of the association as, quote, the other Jack London scholar, unquote. <laughs> Of course, there were a few others at the time, but that gives you an idea of what the situation was with the, uh, with the establishment, the academic establishment. I'm saying the, the Great Awakening, as I call it, really took place starting about the mid-1960s uh, with the publication of the one-volume edition of his uh, letters edited by King Hendricks and Irving Shepard. My own... Uh, uh, book, uh, Great Short Stories of Jack London, was published in the Harper Perennial Classic series. Uh, Franklin Walker's uh, Jack London, the Klondike, which is a, still a, a very uh, major work on that period in London's life, came out then. Perhaps most important was uh, Hensley Woodbridge's monumental bibliography, which uh, provided uh, uh, a kind of a basic research tool for London scholars. And shortly after that, Woodbridge founded the uh, Jack London Newsletter, which gave the uh, Jack London folks a, a, a forum where they could exchange ideas and articles and what have you. And toward the end of that decade, Russ Kingman, who had a very successful advertising business in Oakland, decided to move up to Glen Ellen near the Jack London State Park and Ranch and opened up a Jack London bookstore. And that later became a kind of mecca for London fans as well as some uh, a good many scholars. He also inaugurated the annual Jack London Birthday Banquet, which is still held every year and attracts participants uh, from not only this country but overseas as well. 
I'm trying to give you a short history. I can go on all <laughs> afternoon with this. But anyhow, uh, things really took off in the 1970s. Uh, I know that several uh, major journals, including Modern Fiction Studies, published centennial issues, 1976, uh, the centennial of Jack's birth. Also, uh, uh, we got my uh, edition, my, excuse me, my book, uh, Jack London in the Plain United States Author Series, which is the first major uh, critical biography, first book-length uh, critical biography or study of London's works as artistry. And also Jim McClinock's uh, study of his short stories came out that year. And not long after that, a uh, uh, few years after that, uh, Chuck Watson's uh, book on uh, London's novels came out. By the way, in the 1980s, our uh, edition of the letters, three-volume edition of London's Letters published by Stanford, got first got the front-page reviews in both the New York Times and the London uh, uh, Times Literary Supplement. So that was, that was something, I think, that kind of waked up a few people to the fact that London might be more than just a, a hack that wrote some bonus stories. Also, that uh, in the along about 1988 or so, Clarice Stas's uh, biography about both Charmin and Jack, uh, American Dreamers, was the first major study of Charmian, uh, the first, first reliable one, I should say, because uh, she had been pretty well, uh, I think, uh, disparaged or downplayed in some of the earlier biographies. Of course, by now, we've got the Jack London Foundation, which was also established by Russ Kingman back in the 70s, and it puts out uh, a quarterly newsletter and uh, also sponsors the annual Jack London Banquet. We've got the Jack London Society, which has been uh, going very steady now for almost two decades, which was founded by one of my own uh, students, Gene Raisman, who's done some some definitive studies on London short stories as well as the racial issue and things of that sort, and they put out a quarterly journal too. So we're uh, we're moving ahead finally after all those years. So I uh, I guess that kind of gives you an idea of what's what's happened the last fifty years, which has really been a an amazing burgeoning of scholarly interest in Jack London. Very good. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. All right, so this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website. I wish I had something like this when I was starting The Art of Manliness because it took me, I just, it was so frustrating. I had, you had to know HTML, you had to know CSS, you had to know PHP. So I was tinkering with it and I would just break things. And so I ended up, ended up having to hire a professional web designer anyways, costing me a lot of money. Uh, with Squarespace, there's none of that. You don't have to know that HTML or computer coding. It's just click and point and click and drag. And in a few minutes, you can have a fantastic looking website that works across multiple devices, laptop, smartphones, tablets. Uh, you get 24-7 support with Squarespace. So if you've been thinking about starting a website of some sort, an online store to uh, sell your wares, uh, check out squarespace.com. Uh, if you want a free trial and for 10% off, 
Visit squarespace.com slash manliness. That's squarespace.com slash manliness. And enter in offer code MAN, M-A-N, at checkout. And now back to the show. So as I read your biography, one thing I discovered was that much of Jack London's fiction was based on his own life and experiences. And the man lived an incredible life. Uh, I mean, he had so many adventures before he even turned 30 years old. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Jack London's life, can you give us some of the highlights of his youthful exploits? Well, let's see. Um, see if I can keep this fairly brief for you because it's such an interesting uh, period of his life. You know, he had a very tough childhood coming from a working class uh, family and what have you, sometimes on the verge of poverty. He later claimed that he had no boyhood at all, which wasn't quite true, but uh, that's the way he remembered it. Uh, had to go to work at a factory as soon as he finished grade school, sometimes working 12, 15, even some. On one occasion, I think he said about 18 hours of stretch there. One of his most powerful stories, The Apostate, tell us about that kind of experience. Jack himself wasn't quite like the poor uh, uh, young fellow in the apostate, but there was a kind of emotional autobiography in that work in terms of the terrible working conditions back before we had child labor laws and what have you. He had enough of that factory work at the age of 15, said he was tired of being a factory work beast and became a member of... Uh, a gang out there called the Oyster Pirates of San Francisco Bay. Now, these weren't kids. Uh, these weren't teenagers. These were full-grown men. They were they were criminals, <laughs> uh, pretty hardened criminals in some uh, in some cases. But uh, he uh, managed to get three hundred dollars from his uh, uh, aunt Jenny Prentice, uh, who had been his this wonderful African American woman who had been his wet nurse and almost like a second mother to him ever since his infancy. Anyhow, she lent him enough money to buy a boat from a, one of the veteran pirates named French Frank. And uh, so he joined that bunch of, uh, of grown criminals. He said later on, the miracle of my life is that I live to be 21. Says most of my buddies were either dead or in prison by then. Uh, that was true. He spent a year with the uh, oyster pirates. What they were doing, of course, was raiding the commercial oyster beds around the very area there, which were uh, guarded. They were guarded. They had uh, the uh, big companies that owned them were put guards out there, so it was risky business. They had to do most of their had to do their uh, work at night, and still it was uh, it was touch and go with the authorities and with the policemen, he managed to survive. And uh, after a year of that, decided he was going to change and go to the side of the law. So he joined the California Fish Patrol. Now, he wasn't going around arresting some of his buddies up up where he had been, but he went down south so that uh, it was a different area for him to police. He spent several months with the California Fish Patrol and then at the age of 17, he shipped uh, as an able-bodied citizen, excuse me, wake up, bro, able-bodied seaman aboard the Sophia Sutherland, the 
on an eight-month uh, voyage for the Northwest Pacific Ocean to hunt seals. This was one of the most important phases of his uh, younger years because he got to see a lot of the world, including a number of islands in Japan, uh, before they actually hit the sealing grounds out there. He also got a lot of the material that he would later use in his novel, The Sea Wolf. After that voyage, he came back, had to work again for a while in the factory, but uh, uh, after another year or so, he decided he was going to hit the road again, and he joined the Western contingent of Cox's army, this army of the unemployed that was marching on Washington back in 1893 to protest the kind of terrible working conditions that they had. And he spent uh, several months with them. He, he quit that uh, uh, army, quit that group at Hannibal, Missouri, and uh, decided to light out on his own hoboing. Now, back then, hoboing meant uh, uh, the road, as he called it, meant the railroad. There weren't any highways to speak of, and uh, all the travel like that, most of it was by train. And so he hopped cars, which was kind of a risky business too, freight cars and what have you, and managed to get on up east, saw a good deal of the east, but when he wanted to see Niagara Falls, got in late one night uh, in a sidecar Pullman, he called it, (laughs) a boxcar, strolled out and took a look at the falls at night, and they were so beautiful, he then went, he flopped, as he said, in a nearby field to get some sleep. Wanted to get up the next morning to see the falls by daybreak, but he never made it. He's, as he was walking through downtown Niagara Falls, he got tapped on the shoulder, and this constable, who was actually a kind of bounty hunter, got, a, I think, a buck forever hobo that he arrested, arrested him, and he was uh, uh, brought before court and sentenced to 30 days in the Erie County Penitentiary. He said, Judge, I'm not a vagrant. I've got money. The judge says, Son, you argue. I'm going to give you 60 days. So Jack uh, shut up and took his 30 days. But that was one of the most important experiences of his life. As he said later on, I saw things in that penitentiary that I, can, uh, I can't write about. I, I can scarcely think about them. We know enough now about some of the conditions especially if we've seen that movie, The Shawshank Redemption. We know enough about uh, the way prison conditions were back then to kind of imagine some of the stuff he saw. Anyhow, that was enough to determine him to go back and get an education. So when he got out of jail, he did a little more sightseeing and then headed back to Oakland, went to high school, uh, spent... uh, uh, Oh, let's see, he spent, I think, a year and a half before he decided he was going to try to get in college, managed to pass the entrance exams to the University of California, Berkeley, by studying intensively on his own, and spent one semester there, then had to drop out because of of financial conditions. And that uh, we're going now to about 1897, when he's 21 years old, uh, this is the time of the great Klondike gold rush, which is, I think, the uh, greatest uh, gold rush in the history of American uh, culture or whatever. And uh, he managed to get up there 
and he spent a year in the Klondike. And he said later on uh, that uh, was where he found himself. And uh, that gives you... Uh, he came back and then started writing intensively to become uh, uh, what he, he thought would be a successful writer. So that gives you... Uh, some idea of the of his youthful experiences. Very good. Um, so you mentioned that he he had a bit of formal schooling, did grade school, uh, did some high school, and then he went to college for a bit. Um, but he was largely self educated. Uh, he did a lot of studying on his own and teaching him how to himself how to write on his own. Where do you think he got that discipline and tenacity to stick to his strenuous study regimens? And are there any takeaways for our college days listeners that they could use from Jack London? Well, uh, Brad, he had amazing uh, self-discipline. Uh, it's just absolutely astonishing. Also, he was tremendously motivated to succeed, to pull himself out of the social pit as he had witnessed it. He later said to himself, poverty made me hustle. At the same time, he had this uh, incredible willpower and self-discipline. By the way, I've counted more than 600 rejections he got during the first five years of his career, but he refused to give up even when his friends and family were telling him to get a steady job. Sometimes he would spend uh, uh, all in writing itself. He, he'd spend 12 or 14 hours a day he tried to limit himself to two or three hours sleep a night, but he couldn't get by on that. He finally managed to get a set regimen of five hours a night, which he stuck with the rest of his life. And he was an he was a voracious reader, and that that was uh, one of the factors I think in his success. But I'm going back to your question about his self education. He had fallen in love with books. He said when he was about, I think five years old or so, and he tells about some of the earlier books he read, such as uh, Washington Irving's Alhambra and uh, a couple of other famous travel books or what have you. Also, uh, uh, a story by uh, uh, an author named Ouida about a young Italian boy who succeeds, what have you. In other words, he had been a voracious reader from his very early childhood. And I think that was one of the reasons that he was able to, to maintain this kind of uh, self-motivation to become a writer himself. Okay, so you mentioned uh, all the rejections London faced when he was first starting out. Besides being a voracious reader, what else did he do to improve his writing? Uh, incidentally, uh, I... Uh, let, let me back up a little bit here. You mentioned, uh, I clipped in college age listeners. What could they get from Jack? Oh, Hunter? sure. May I back up for that just a minute? I, I got to bring in my, if you don't mind, I, I asked my daughter, Andrea, about this question because she uh, was a student of mine, uh, not too many years ago in my Jack London course, by the way, uh, I have a 22-year-old daughter. I, I lost my wife to cancer uh, 25 years ago. I have four wonderful children from that marriage, but 
uh, Andrea has uh, um, been a godsend to me, and, and she's become a kind of Jack London fan. I asked her uh, uh, this question, by the way. I said, well, what, what would you say about these dudes? She said, uh, 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 you know, Jack wrote a thousand words minimum a day. She said that'd be, uh, uh, and she said that'd leave most college students balking. She said, uh, at the same time, uh, uh, said uh, most students would still do well to to have his kind of uh, motivation and his kind of schedule. So let me, I just want to bring that in if you didn't mind. We'll move on now. Uh, tell me what the... Uh, the next question was, please. Well, um, how did he improve his writing during those years he was getting all those rejection letters? Ah, uh, well, uh, let me see if I can uh, get that from the outset. For one thing, I think the fact that he was a reader helped him considerably. But uh, at first, when he was trying to break into the literary marketplace bear bear in mind Brett, that there were about 500 magazines out in those days that we didn't have uh television we didn't have movies we didn't have the radio we certainly didn't have computers or what have you and that the magazine was the major cultural medium or what have you at the time so there a lot of chances for a writer to break in with short stories and poems and articles and what have you, even novel serials. So uh, he was trying to write the kind of stuff that was being published in the popular magazines. Now, most of that was sentimental claptrap and what have you, was second rate. So what he was trying, what he was producing was third rate. Bless his heart. I've read, in fact, we published some of those stories in our complete uh, uh, edition in the Stanford edition there, and you can understand why they were rejected. But what he did, he he began copying the uh, uh, works of Kipling. He he was reading intensively uh, such contemporaries as Joseph Conrad and Robert Louis Stevenson, even some of the earlier masters like Poe and Melville, actually copying some of their works uh, to get a feel of what it was, especially Kipling's plain style. He also said he read Herbert Spencer's uh, pamphlet Philosophy of Style, which taught him to use words that would uh, clearly convey the meaning of his of his stories. In other words, uh, unlike some of the contemporaries or modern writers I mentioned earlier, I'm thinking of Faulkner and Henry, Henry James and James Joyce, uh, he, he wrote so clearly that the reader could understand what he was telling without any help from, from the professors or the critics. That's one reason, as I say, he's uh, not been very popular with the establishment. Uh, now, back to his year in the Klondike, which was a turning point in his writing. He said uh, it was in the Klondike I found myself. Said you get your true perspective up there. I got mine. He didn't. He didn't do any writing up there. He did a lot of listening. He did a lot of firsthand observing. Of course, he had some interesting experiences himself. 
most of what he wrote about later on was stuff that he had heard other uh, miners, sourdoughs, and tenderfoots uh, talk about, some of the legends up there. Anyhow, when he came back, he had something really substantial to uh, to work with, as well as he had been over that year kind of mulling, and I think uh, his style uh, was was improved, even though he hadn't been writing up there. I think he needed that period of kind of maturing or whatever. When he got back, he was still a little unsure of himself, as you can tell from his letters back in 19, excuse me, 1898 or so when he came back. But uh, early in 1899, the Atlantic Monthly accepted a story of his of his called An Odyssey of the North. And they said, dear Mr. London, we'll, uh, uh, we'll accept your story here, give you $120 plus a year's free subscription to the monthly, if you'll let us, Atlantic Monthly, if you'll let us cut, uh, uh, if you don't mind cutting uh, about a third of it. <laughs> he didn't like the idea of cutting it, but he was going to take, that, going to take their, their uh, offer because $120 then was three or four months' pay in the factories. Plus, and this is the most important thing, if you made it in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, you were in, because that was probably uh, the most important magazine, not only in America, but maybe in the world. And once he got into the Atlantic Monthly, he was he was set. Let me mention something else, though, in terms of his uh, uh, success. There have been several studies of genius successful genius not only in in writing but also in sports and music and mathematics and computers and what have you. And a common denominator there, according to some of the experts, is thousands of hours spent in practice. Uh, at least one, maybe two of these uh, experts have set 10,000 hours as they, the standard there of practice, and Jack London would have met that standard in terms of the hours he spent reading and writing and perfecting his trade. Once he had perfected that, uh, that was it. In other words, once he began producing his best work in, say, 1900 or so, from then on... For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. 
Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money and things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Uh, he, he did that without uh, too much trouble. It was amazing he could turn out these stories, as I say, minimum 1,000 words a day, what he did often was to mull a while. He'd drop, he'd make notes, and then mull over the stories. But once he started writing, he he'd get it down there, and almost with a, without exception, he made. He, there were few, very few revisions that he would make. It's amazing what he was able to produce. Anyhow, I hope I've answered your question.
Also by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about in The Art of Manliness for the past 11 years now and talking about on the podcast. And we've done that in a few ways. First, we created a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's things like public speaking, social skills, personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father. We also have hard skills like first aid, wilderness survival, self-defense, emergency prep. We've got that. We also will send you a weekly challenge that will push you outside of your comfort zone in some way. We also hold you accountable with a daily fitness check-in and a good deed check-in to get you thinking outside of yourself. And with The Strenuous Life, there's opportunities for you to meet up with other TSL members in your area to do this stuff together. We just had an enrollment in September, filled it up in less than 24 hours. Our next enrollment is going to be in January. So if you want to kick off the year right, check out thestrenuouslife.co. Get your email on our waiting list. We'll let you know as soon as enrollment opens up. While you're at strenuouslife.co, check out the program. We lay it out, all that's involved in it, what you get. And we also have lots of testimonials from members who've done the program as well. Strenuouslife.co. Put your email on the waiting list. Hope to see you in January. And now back to the show. You did. Um, so one thing that I've noticed in Jack London's fiction, and then I, I also saw this in your biography when you talked about personal letters from Jack London, was he had this idea of living a life with the spirit of adventure and romance. First, what did London mean by that? And then second... Do you think people today in the 21st century are capable of living a life filled with the spirit of romance and adventure? Oh, it's a good question, Brent. Let me uh, uh, let me see here. I guess if you read my book, you've read uh, Jack London's famous credo, where uh, he says it's better to. I mean, the function of man is to live, not to exist. He wants to be a meteor and all that. So I think that pretty well in one way, sums up his attitude. But uh, I, I say in my biography, he was a natural-born seeker. Uh, and I, and that's something I think that no other biographer has quite said in the same way, in that this is one of our most basic uh, primal drives that, excuse me, uh, that the uh, scientists have, have discovered in the last few decades along with the drive for, what, food, fear, and uh, all the sex and what have you, that in all mammals there is this deep-seated primal uh, seeking drive often that that, uh, pushes us to seek new uh, adventures, even sometimes, uh, though it may be at the risk of life, sometimes it means uh, uh, that this drive overrides the some of those other fundamental drives. Anyhow, I'm saying that Jack was a natural-born seeker and had an extraordinarily powerful seeking drive. Like Tennyson's Ulysses, he wanted to drink life to the lees and savor every drop of it, even if it meant risking his own life. Romance and adventure meant seeking new worlds uh, to explore. Uh, dangerous, unexplored, what, terra incognito, including worlds of the mind, by the way. wasn't just out there geographically, but he was, uh, uh, he was a seeker in terms of knowledge throughout his life, even to the end of his life. Note, for example, I talk about his discovery of the work, the theories of Carl Gustav Jung just a few months before he died. He said to Charming, his wife, I'm standing on the edge of a world so new, so terrible, so wonderful, I'm almost afraid to look over into it. Uh, 
his use of the word almost, I think, is important because he mastered his fear and underwent a really major uh, psychological and philosophical transformation or awakening, perhaps I should call it, before his death and produced some of his finest stories the last several months of his life. Actually, a bit of irony here, uh, he had been writing with what Jung calls uh, a primordial vision from almost, almost from the start. I mean, the Call of the Wild, for example, is is full of what uh, we call myth and archetypes and what have you. It's a wonderful book in terms of, of that universal appeal. But uh, as I say, London realized at the end there that he had he had been missing something, and I think he was undergoing a significant, uh, what, spiritual awakening as well as philosophical awakening toward the end there. Brett, I think that it's still possible, but it's much more difficult now. We, And it's it's much more difficult now for folks than it was for me when I was coming along. Uh, there are so many more restrictions and what have you. Too many young people, I'm afraid, are trying to get their romance and adventure playing video games and watching spectacular videos and, and what have you. They're bombarded with all these things that we didn't have when I was growing up. For example, no television then. We didn't have the radio. But uh, back when Jack was coming along, they didn't even have that. So uh, young folks had to go out on their own to to seek adventures instead of finding them on a computer screen or TV screen or what have you. Uh, I see. I've got something for Andrea here that I'm, I'll share with you if you don't mind. Uh, it says it's definitely possible, she said, to live with a spirit of adventure, but many American lives seem to be too small and too regulated. I guess that's something else. We're closed in by restrictions or whatever that we didn't that we didn't have back in those days. Uh, she says if guided tourists in there, and that doesn't bring new schedules along for their vacation, that's it. And also, she says financial constraints. But back in in Jack's day and mine, financial constraints were something we broke to go out to find adventure and, and romance or whatever because uh, – uh, we sometimes made money doing that. I can tell you more about my own experience later on, but Jack, of course, when he got out uh, uh, hoboing, he, he managed to, to get food and, and even money sometimes to keep going out there. It's just that it's more difficult, I think, in every respect uh, for folks now. It's still there, but uh, it's not as easy to get. Let's uh, let's discuss the manliness of Jack London because this is the art of manliness after all. Uh, he did all these manly deeds. He was extremely competitive, extremely driven, uh, tried to be physically strong, um, raised hell. He was a known ladies' man, et cetera, et cetera. But he was also very sensitive and had a deep, rich emotional life. Um, what do you think Jack London can teach other men about being a man? That's a great question, Brad. Uh, uh, I don't know that many of us could match uh, 
London and all those aspects of what we call manliness. But uh, we can certainly practice the art of manliness, uh, as you kind of demonstrated in your website to your listeners. Um, let me... Uh, let, let me see if I can clarify this a little further in terms of what you've already brought up here. First, I think it's important to know that Jack wasn't merely the macho man. Uh, I think London was what what I would call the complete man who had accepted his anima or sensitive feminine element as an essential component component of his of his whole self. Now I'm getting into Jungian psychology here, but the idea is that each of us has elements of both the masculine and feminine. Now, I don't mean in any kind of literal sense, but those characteristics we associate with those two uh, genres in our psyche, and that in order to become a complete person, we've got to assimilate and recognize and appreciate those elements. I love, uh, for example, I'm quoting that uh, famous photographer, portrait photographer, Arnold Genthey, who was a good friend of Jackson, uh, described London's face as, I'm quoting here, poignantly sensitive. His eyes were the eyes of a dreamer, and there was almost a feminine wistfulness about him. And yet at the same time, he gave the feeling of a terrible and unconquerable physical force. That's unquote. At the same time, Jack despised cowardice in a man. He, he could weep, but he never could whine or whimper. He was, I'm, I'm thinking of other characteristics, he was fearless. Now, I'm going to say that, by example, uh, men, a true man should be fearless but not foolish. There's, there's a limitation there, and sometimes Jack simply didn't recognize his own limits, I think. I think also in terms of this idea of manliness, from Jack we get the concept of self-reliance, self-determination, but not self-absorption. In other words, uh, not totally wrapped up in oneself. I mean, some of Jack's uh, uh, major characters, I'm thinking of Wolf Larson and Martin Eden, die because they're too self-absorbed in a sense, and they're not interested enough and kind enough to the other human beings around them. Also, of course, there there's the business, I think, and getting close to nature if we can, and if possible, get closer to nature in the wild. Uh, and it is possible nowadays. In fact, uh, I still, I, one of my uh, grandsons, he, he lifts weights, he plays rugby, and he goes out to climbs mountains in the Rockies every summer. So he's found a way to find that adventure, even though we have difficulties nowadays doing it. I think he's he's got the idea of manliness there. I hope that gives you some some idea or uh, an answer to your question. It did. Um, so one thing 
I found as I was reading your biography is that while there's so much to admire about Jack London, he also had his flaws, um, like any person. What were Jack London's biggest flaws that haunted his career and personal life? Oh, my. Well, he was subject to fits of depression. I think he was, he may have been bipolar. Uh, he hated bullies, but especially in the later years of his life, he could do some bullying himself, especially when he was suffering from some of his uh, medical ailments and what have you. Uh, as tremendous seeking drive, I think, might be considered a fault in view of the many times he he endangered his life and even the lives of maybe his wife, Charmin, and some of the crew members of his boat, the Snark, there. Yeah. In other words, he was an extremist, and I think that can be dangerous. He also refused to accept reality at times. He loved life and, and was in denial of the fact that he was so very, very ill up to the very end. He was also in denial about his alcoholism. He, he always claimed that he was not uh, a drunkard, and that, I think, is true. I mean, nobody ever saw him after he was grown, uh, but uh, <laughs> out, of, out of control. In fact, his wife, Charmin, said he just got more intense intellectually, and I think his friends say the same thing. I think there's no question, though, that he suffered the symptoms of, of alcoholism. And I know that's an ailment. I don't know whether it's considered a flaw in his character, but it's certainly a problem that he had. And he was also in denial in terms of uh, taking enough exercise and doing the right kind of eating, staying on a healthful diet after he, after he got uh, older. Those are the... Uh, the flaws that I think of just offhand. Okay. Um, it sort of leads us to the, my next question. Let's talk about his death because it's something that's very controversial. Um, many people, including some Jack London biographers, believe that London committed suicide, and they use this belief to tarnish London and his legacy. But you come to a different conclusion in your biography. Um, how did Jack London die? This is a major issue, Brett, and I've been contending with this for the past uh, half century or more. This canard or lie, whatever you want to call it, uh, started in 1938 with the publication of Irving Stone's Sailor on Horseback. And it's been perpetrated uh, and perpetuated ever since then. It's amazing to me that it's it's held on the way it has in the in the light of of all evidence. I guess a lot of uh, scholars, even even the serious scholars, think it's more <laughs> somehow more colorful or whatever that he commits suicide. But there's not a shred of evidence that he committed suicide. In fact, on the night before his death, uh, I think the last letter he wrote was a letter to his two daughters in saying he was going to be down in Oakland, wanted to take him out to a picnic the following week before he went on a trip to New York City. There are no, no indications that he was thinking of suicide. There's 
some possibility, we don't know for sure, there's some possibility that he may have administered, uh, uh, self-administered morphine the night uh, before he died. But it's been clinically proven that that was not the, probably not the cause of his death. Uh, there have been several studies done recently by uh, distinguished physicians and medical scientists, what have you, demonstrating that the probable cause of his death was uh, uh, stroke and, and heart failure. Now, he was suffering from kidney problems for the last, oh, three years of his life. And there were four attending physicians during his dying hours there, all of whom attributed his death to natural causes. The newspapers at the time uh, also said that. His death certificate signed by Dr. Uh, Porter also attributes his death to uremia. Now, because he had been suffering from kidney problems, that seemed to be the logical thing. But the, the, the symptoms, when they found him that last morning, uh, he was in a sort of paralytic state. One, his, there was that uh, what we call cyanotic, cyanotic uh, coloring in his face. And, and uh, as I think Charlie said, he, he, he tried to beat the, the uh, bed with one arm, but the other arm could not move. All of that points to the symptoms of, of stroke, I think. And that's what I've tried to make clear in my biography. I've, and if you look at my end notes, you'll see a good deal of uh, substantiation of what I've just said there about his about his death, and even about the the drug overdose, which is I say uh, that that is is highly debatable even in itself. So you are a a college professor, and you teach a course on Jack London and his work. What do you hope your students get out of reading Jack London's fiction? Well, <laughs> let me, uh, uh, let's see. I think uh, uh, he's he's got plenty to say for, to say for our, our, all of us nowadays. And including uh, uh, my students and others, the whole business of uh, of seeing what adventure may may be possible for them, the uh, possibility maybe of getting out of the city, and I think perhaps as important as anything, the importance of reading, but also connecting what you read with life. I, I keep thinking about Emerson, who said, only so much do I know as I have lived. And so with Jack, and I think even with students today, it's important to to relate what uh, they're reading and uh, even what they're viewing on video or what have you to real life to make that vital connection. The world's still a very fascinating place, even though we're restricted in so many ways that we weren't when I was growing up and certainly when, when Jack was growing up. My my students invariably have been very uh, positive in their responses to 
London's work and his talk of adventure and what have you. And I think more than one has actually has actually gone on the adventure trail himself or herself as a result of reading Sir Jack Gunn. I'm hoping in any in any case it's opened their minds to uh, worlds out there that they might not have uh, dreamed of otherwise. Um, Herodotus, the famous historian, um, said that biography should be used as moral instruction. Are there lessons you hope readers will take away from the life of Jack London after reading your biography? Uh, another good question, Brent. I'm trying to uh, let me see how I can best approach this. What are there? Uh, let me see. Don't be afraid of life or life's challenges. I think that's one uh, message they could get out of here. I think that's a moral lesson. Avoid self-pity. Be open, fair, and honest in dealing with your fellow human beings. Be honest with yourself. Uh, be open to new ideas and opportunities. But avoid extremes. I think Jack uh, sometimes couldn't draw the line there. He, he tended too often to go beyond that uh, that line. He was an extremist. He admitted himself. I think characteristics like kindness, decency, courage, all of these are lessons can be, I would hope, be conveyed from the life of Jack London. I know this is going to sound a little corny, but I think a major theme that I would like my readers to, to get from this book is the importance of love. I don't mean, uh, I mean love in the fullest sense. Love of life, love of adventure, but uh, also love of, uh, of nature, love of the other creatures on God's earth, and, and that means the animals as well as the human beings. Jack, Jack was very much in love with life in, in its fullest sense. And I'll mention again that uh, this is a major theme in the Call of the Wild, White Fang. And it's also a major theme in the Sea Wolf. If you read the Sea Wolf, Wolf Larson is the most impressive character in American fiction, I think. But Wolf Larson dies because he is, he's not in love with much, <laughs> even with himself, I think. The, the survivor hero of the book, in a sense, is Humphrey Van Weyden who uh, falls in love with this woman and and becomes a, a total man as a result of it. Just as Jack, I think, fell in love with Charmian in London, Wolf Larson reflects a good deal of, uh, of Jack's what he called long sickness. And he said later on that love of people and love of a woman cured him, which I think it may have. Uh, oh, let me mention one other thing. And I guess I can put a moral uh, kind of moral implication on this or what have you. Jack loved the earth, loved Mother Earth. Remember the last several years of his life he devoted to restoring the earth out there in the Valley of the Moon, to building, rebuilding the land. He was a pioneer in ecology. So I'm saying that I think that can be included as one of the moral implications or Perhaps I should say inferences. I want the the reader to get from reading about his life. 
Very good. That was all wonderful, wonderful um, insights. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about your life because as I was trying to find out your contact information and in our conversations and email, I learned that you had have had a life that somewhat mirrored Jack London's in a few ways. Um, you did some really strenuous and manly things as a young man, but ended up a, a man of letters like Jack London. Can you talk a bit about your, your younger life and how did those experiences as a young man affect your work as a, an adult? Well, I appreciate, I appreciate the question. So bear with me. Sure. Uh, there, there are some similarities. Now, let me start by saying there's no way I could match Jack London and, and either uh, his, uh, his physical exploits or his, uh, his certainly not in his magnificent, uh, literary exploits, but I, I did have a, a little similarity in my childhood. I was a depression kid. My family never suffered from acute poverty, but we were on the edge. I never went hungry as a child, but there were times when uh, life was pretty tough. I mean, there were times when we certainly didn't have a car. There were times when we were uh, buying day-old bread for a nickel a loaf, but that was there was nothing wrong with that. Um, my folks uh, sent me to Dallas Technical High School to learn a trade. Back in those days, oh, usually it's only rich kids that could afford to go to college. So I went to Dallas Tech. I I did pretty well in machine shop, wood shop, electric shop, auto shop. Uh, I did very well in drafting. Probably would have become a draftsman as my uh, career, except for a wonderful English teacher who spotted me virtually the first week in class as uh, college material. She groomed me for four years. We wrote a theme a week. She groomed me for college and helped me get scholarships at SMU so that I was able to, to go to college. And I was able to write, too, after all that practice. I don't know if I had 10,000 hours like Jack, but I did a lot of writing uh, under her tutelage, and that made a big difference in my success in, in college. But even then, uh, I had to work, uh, particularly in the summers. Uh, one summer, I spent uh, stringing barbed wire fence in East Texas. And another summer, second summer, excuse me, baling hay up in Oklahoma. Uh, next summer, I worked on a, a maintenance crew at Lone Star Steel in uh, in Texas down there. So... Uh, I, I, and I'd had other jobs. I, were, I worked for a while in a, when I was in school, worked in a bakery for a while, worked in a uh, a fish market for a while. I remember my mom wouldn't let me come in the back door when I got home in the evenings. She had me change my clothes out in the garage because uh, I've been working with the fish all day. I'm just saying that uh, all that, I think, may have been in one way good for me. It certainly made me appreciate school. I was always ready to go back to school when the time came. But the big adventure I had closest to Jack London came when I was, after I graduated from SMU in 1949, my best friend I mentioned earlier, 
P.B. Lindsey from Gilmer, Texas, the, uh, the veteran, he and I decided we were going to get away from all this, all the restrictions of, of society and civilization and all that, kind of like Jack hitting the road. We were going to work the wheat harvest all the way from the Texas handle, panhandle up to Canada, and that would give us enough uh, money to uh, grub stake whatever to buy the supplies to go out into the Canadian wilderness and spend a year. We we even spotted a lake out there totally away from all kinds of civilization. We were going to go out there and build a cabin and just spend a year in the wilderness or whatever. Now, Brett, I got to admit that the good Lord was with us. We didn't make it to Canada, but we had some remarkable adventures along the way. In fact, uh, my next book, which I'm working on right now, is going to be a celebration of that particular odyssey, which took place in one of the most significant periods in American cultural history, which has never been celebrated. I'm talking about that unique five-year period in American history between the end of the Second World War and beginning of the Korean War. Unlike the 20s, nobody's done much with that. And I think while there's still somebody around that remembers it, it ought to be celebrated because it was it was very different, very special. I mean, all the veterans coming back, America, there was an aura of optimism then that I think we never had before, maybe not since. I mean, we had, the American folks had, uh, uh, we had lived successfully, through triumphantly, through a depression, and uh, and the large, the biggest war in history, we had emerged triumphant. Where America was the clearly the most powerful nation in the world. Look at what we had accomplished. So we felt that the sky was the limit. And as a result, uh, uh, as I say, there was a kind of aura about that period that I think needs to be celebrated. And I want to do that in this book of mine because my friend PB and I were part of that. I mean, the idea that we could go up there and uh, do all that was, <laughs> I, it sounds in, sounds very foolish now, but at the time we felt we could do it. After all, we were both, uh, uh, we both won gold medals in weightlifting. And I, uh, you know, I, I did some weightlifting there, competitive Olympic lifting, and, and oh, we didn't know what our limits were at the time. That, that would come later. But that uh, particular odyssey took us through the Midwest up to the, uh, even as far as uh, the uh, Yellowstone and what have you. I worked on building grain elevators. I worked, uh, uh, let's say, some of the other jobs on the wheat field. We worked threshing uh, wheat or harvesting wheat. We worked uh, for a while up in uh, Kansas City. I even had a little, like London, I had a little bit of boxing experience, but unlike London, I had enough of that and decided I'd stick with weights because I'd, I preferred that kind of passive resistance. And I even uh, had a job trimming hams in Armour's Meatpacking Plant. So all of that, I think, in one sense, uh, might relate to to Jack and what he went through. As I say, the world, in many ways, is more open than I had. I had no worries about uh, hitchhiking. All those adventures we had, not once did we encounter drugs, alcoholism, or what have you. Uh, I'll give you one example here, if you've got time. Sure. One of our, our toughest jobs was with an alfalfa mill out in western Kansas. Now, 
some of the other work had been, I guess, as strange. I certainly working in the steel mill was more dangerous in some ways. But this alfalfa mill out west of Arnold, Kansas, involved our sacking dried alfalfa feed for uh, livestock. And the, the way it happened, they would bring in the trucks and bring in this fresh alfalfa, and it would be dried and shredded up the top of this, uh, uh, this furnace and then come down in these uh, funnels to, to uh, the workplace below where we were supposed to sack it in 100-pound feed sacks. And each, there were three, there were three pipes coming down each of which was bifurcated. We put uh, uh, a bed sack on one and while the sack to fill it, uh, we put an empty sack on the other one. When that sack is full, we switch over and switch to the other one. We pack the full gunny sack over to scales, make sure it weighs 100 pounds exactly. It's too much, take a little out and throw it in the barrel next there. If it's too little, we dip a little out of the barrel and put in there. And we load these up. We, when they're full, we sew them up, load them up four to a dolly, and pull them out to a boxcar next to us. Now, that was strenuous work. It was heavy work, but that didn't bother us. We were young and strong. The problem was this uh, fine green dust was in the air all the time, and it got into our lungs, into our eyes, and our ears, and what have you. And finally, my friend got a case of best pneumonia from it. Anyhow, that was probably the, the worst job we had, but all of that, I think, uh, helped motivate us, uh, at least helped motivate me to come back and, and get a uh, master's degree at SMU. I'm, ge- I'm taking more time than I should here, but I wanted to uh, give you an idea of what, I was, uh, what I'm doing with that book we're calling The Far Music. Yeah, I, I can't wait to, to read that when it comes out. Well, Earl Labor, this has been a, just a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate, as I say, I appreciate your interest and your patience, and uh, I look forward to corresponding with you again concerning the art of madness. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, it's really an honor. Uh, I really enjoyed your book, and uh, I just, yeah, I love listening to to what you had to say about Jack London. My pleasure. Take right. care now. Take care, you too. Our guest today was Earl Labor. Professor Labor is the curator of the Jack London Museum in Shreveport, and he teaches American literature at Centenary College, Louisiana. And he is the author of the biography, Jack London in American Life. You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And I recommend that all of you go pick up a copy and read it. It's a great read. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted where I felt adventures pulse with every step. 
and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.